Welcome to Mind, Body, Spirit, Food. I'm your host, Nikki Sizemore, and in this podcast, we'll explore the rituals, traditions, and cultural influences around food and how they connect us to our minds, our bodies, our spirits, the earth, and our communities. This is a space that's dedicated to bringing more presence, ease, and joy into the process of feeding ourselves. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to share today's podcast with you. It is a big one, and honestly, the timing couldn't be better for this episode as we're about to head into the holiday season with Thanksgiving just a few days away. I speak with Elise Lunin, who is a best-selling author and the host of the podcast, Pulling the Thread. Elise is the author of the New York Times bestselling book on our best behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. It is so, so good if you haven't read it. She's also co-written 12 other books. And prior to her podcast, she was chief content officer of Goop, where she co-hosted the podcast there as well. I love Elise's work because she's such a thorough researcher and very intellectually minded. And at the same time, she explores the deep questions of why we're here on a more metaphysical level. Today, we're talking about the gluttony chapter of her book and how it relates to the patriarchal system we live in. And again, the timing for this is so apt right now as we're about to head in to the holiday season, which is really all about food. So Elise starts by describing the origins of that patriarchal system, which has come to define our worldview, whether we realize it or not. While it started as a hierarchical, dominance-based external system, it's become an internal system that we all perpetuate, often unconsciously. We explore how the system specifically plays into our relationship with food and our bodies. Elise describes how the quote-unquote sin of gluttony isn't about extreme overindulgence, but rather about our moralizing of food. It's a policing of what we eat and how our bodies look in order to conform and express our goodness. While we're deeply influenced by powers outside of us, I mean, think diet culture, we also perpetuate the system internally. We police ourselves in an effort to be good and to feel like we have control. However, this need for control disconnects us from real pleasure and from our true selves. We talk about how to get out of this giant web of patriarchal conditioning to gain sovereignty for ourselves. The answer, as Elise explains, has to start on the inside. Only when we resolve the issues internally within ourselves can we begin to resolve the bigger societal issues we face. I think you are going to love this episode and learn so much and perhaps even begin to see how you can reclaim your own power and your own pleasure this holiday season. As always, if the episode resonates with you, please share it with your friends and family. Hop over to that podcast app and leave a comment and rate it over there. That really makes a big difference. And you can subscribe to the Mind, Body, Spirit Food newsletter where I dive deeper into these concepts as well as share weekly recipes and cooking tips. And for just $5 a month, you can become a paid member and have access to the full recipe archive as well as to bonus posts and more fun perks. All right, my friends, let's dive in. Hi, Elise. It is such an honor to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Such a joy to speak with you today. You have been an inspiration for me on many levels, but one of the reasons I love your work so well is that 
you marry two things that often seem opposite, and that is intellectualism and spirituality. And I think a lot of people think that those things are on opposite sides. You know, they're very polarized, where in fact, they support each other so well. And I really appreciate the work you do because you empower me and my work that I do as well, which does a little bit of that. Well, thank you. No, I agree. I think that what I've experienced in the work that I've done is the hunger that people have for some sort of spiritual container that might be outside of organized religion, but that contours or colors in some of our experiences Mm -hmm. in a way that it's very reassuring, I think, to look for something bigger than ourselves and our very real problems on this planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to get into some of that. (laughs) But before we do, I'm going to start by asking you the first question that I ask all of my guests so that we can get to know you a little bit better. And that is, what is your cultural upbringing and how has that influenced your relationship to food? Ooh, so I am from Montana and I spent most of my formative years very much in nature and then later moved to the East Coast, and now I live in Los Angeles, and I mostly, almost completely worked in media my whole life. I would say my relationship with food is as complex as most women. Mm -hmm. My mom is a nurse, and my dad is a physician, and they are, you know, deeply fat phobic, as Mm -hmm. many people who are in the medical community are, but also food-loving in their own way. My mom's an incredible self-taught cook, and having meals together was always very important and a sort of grounding time for us at the end of every day. We almost always ate dinner at home, a meal that my mom had made from scratch. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my dad in particular (laughs) is this you know, the mythical five foot nine, 155 pound man. That is mm. my father. And mm-hmm. I'm taller than my dad. I'm the tallest person in my family. And my dad is just one of those people who has a massive appetite. And yes, like we primarily ate whole foods. My parents weren't incredibly rigid about that. I ate my fair share of McDonald's. Mm-hmm. But my dad just has this view of a very simple calories in, calories mm-hmm. out sensibility and that people who are large just have no self-control. Mm-hmm. And so he has a lot of judgment, even though he himself has no self-control, ironically, and yet has one of those metabolisms that keeps his body in check and he's very, very active. So that was really the sort of theme of food was my dad talking about how in his practice, he's a pulmonologist and did a lot of primary care. He's retired now. But that his patients would steadily gain 5 to 10 pounds every year, and then suddenly they were very overweight and struggling to lose the weight. And this is all sort of reasonable, you know, and he would see sort of the downstream effects of that, back pain, knee pain, type 2 diabetes, et cetera. For him, it's very cause and effect, Mm -hmm. this world, and not particularly sympathetic. It's not unlike, you know, a lot of people in the medical world, in my experience. It's not a lot of people, I feel like, in that generation that fear of fat. I mean, I grew up with that. I've spoken very openly about that. I had a visceral fear of fat. A lot of that came from things I heard spoken about in my household, 
And my dad is very similar to how you describe your dad. And it's how it affected me as a female went very deep. And I had to untangle myself from that in many different ways. Yeah. There was one thing that happened to me that was in some ways a little bit of a gift, which is when cholesterol became something that was starting to be looked at, Mm -hmm. I have congenitally high cholesterol. So does my brother. So does my dad. You know, from when I was a young child, my total cholesterol. And at that point, that's really the Mm -hmm. only measure. They weren't looking at HDL and LDL. But my total cholesterol was like 240 or something like that. And I was this like wisp of a kid, you know, doing competitive swimming, etc. And so my brother and I were put on a very restrictive diet of no ice cream, no cake, no fries, Mm. essentially a low fat, low cholesterol diet. And it felt insane Mm -hmm. at the time. We didn't do it for that long, but I remember it. But I think at that moment, it was a helpful exercise for me because I recognized the fallacy of it. And I was like, this makes no sense. I'm tiny and I'm so active. So there's no version where like my heart is about to explode. It was so, it was crazy in retrospect, but in that way, helpful for me to understand that there was often a lack of correlation or causation. So interesting that as a kid, your intuition picked up on that. And you're like, no, this does not make sense. Whereas Mm -hmm. as a kid, I felt that. I felt great. My relationship with food was amazing. But it was almost when I became older and started to intellectualize things that I created these issues for myself. Yeah. I really want to get into your book on our best behavior. But before we do that, I mean, so much of what you write about is sovereignty. And this is something I speak about often in my own work. And my listeners have heard me say this a lot. But my mission really is more around sovereignty around food, but really it goes much deeper and finding sovereignty for ourselves. But to get there, what you're talking about in the book is actually freedom from this patriarchal programming, which is so totally absorbed. We absorb this so fully that oftentimes we can't see it. I know a lot of us were like, oh yeah, the patriarchy this, the patriarchy that, but it is so insidious and it affects our worldview in so many different ways. So before Mm -hmm. we get kind of into the gluttony chapter of the book, I feel like it's important just to lay the groundwork a little bit as to how this system started and how it became so pervasive. Yeah, so that's a big, huge question and we'll probably never really know the full answer. But to get to what you were talking about, I would find in my own life that I would say things like, you know, the patriarchy this or it's they, treating the patriarchy like a boogeyman, right? And at a certain point, I'm like, what am I even talking about? What are any of us talking about? What is it? Who's driving it? Is it a man behind a curtain? Mm. Is it like a secret society? Or (laughs) what I believed and came to understand is true. Is it just, are these tracks that were laid in our consciousness, you know, thousands of years ago that are still alive And it's an internal system driven by us, supported by us, patrolled by us. And so that's what I wanted to understand. Where did it start and how did it seep into your consciousness, my consciousness? Why are we continuing to uphold it Mm. even as we recognize the way that it's harmful? Because I very much believe that, yes, 
it's baked into our systems, our legal system, our political system, but it's also more insidiously part of our worldview and the way that we see ourselves as women or men and what that looks like. For me, the question I was exploring in the book is, what is it to be a good woman? Because the main thesis is that I argue that women are conditioned and programmed to be quote unquote good, mm-hmm. while men are conditioned and programmed for power. And, you know, as one example, the most damaging, the worst thing that you can do to a woman is reputational harm. Say that she's bad, toxic bad mother, bad coworker, lazy, ambitious, you know, all sorts of ideas about who she is, not really grounded in action, but more about sort of who she is in the world and whether she's conforming or deviant. Mm. And again, this is very subtle. We don't say like, I sign up for that. This is in us. Meanwhile, men, you know, can really in many ways do anything. And as long as we revere them as powerful, we respect them. The worst thing you can be as a man is weak or womanly, really. So we kind of know this in some ways on a conscious level, but the book is about how it acts on our psyche in very subtle ways. And so that you don't really realize how you are patrolling your own behavior and policing yourself and then policing each other. And patriarchy, it's one of those things, we all grew up on this idea, maybe not people who are significantly younger, maybe I do think it's starting to change. Well, you know, men are valiant, men are bigger, men are strong, men are the ones who go out and hunt. And the women, you know, We've always, we hang back. We're built to nurture and care and create relationships. And I'm not saying that this isn't on some level true, but it's been grossly overstated. Mm. And that's been our culture, right? Not necessarily our nature. And then the culture informs the nature because Mm. we grew up on these stories of like, well, as a woman, you should really just want to be a mother. You should prioritize other people's needs over your own wants. It's somehow aberrant or strange for you to tend towards violence or be protective or have strong boundaries, you know, whatever the variation of that is. And so I wanted to start to poke holes at that because as we look at our long prehistory, and we'll never really know, but we're starting to understand how much more variable and creative and affiliative and partnership-based we were before we were arranged in these primarily patriarchal cultures and societies that we see today, where as they re-examine old evidence of who we were, you know, 100,000 years ago, it was like, oh, there are many instances of men and women being the same size, for example. So when did Mm. we start to sort of breed ourselves for a difference in size? When did that happen? There's a lot of evidence that there were many female hunters and warriors and Vikings and so on and so forth, that it was never so tidy. And I think our culture today, when we look at the trans movement, when we look at all sorts of people busting through binaries to say, well, I don't want to have kids. Like that is not an instinct that lives in me. Mm -hmm. Or as a man, like all I want to do is be with my children. 
I think we're starting to see like, oh, actually, we're far more variable and interesting and multidimensional, multifaceted and self-expressive than our culture would have us believe. Yeah. It was interesting. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because I could just talk to you on this subject all day. But you said that this really originated with agrarian societies, which I was surprised to hear. And then it was kind of codified into culture through religion. Could you just speak on that just briefly so people have an understanding of like where this did kind of start or where we think it started? I guess you're right. We never, we really can't know. We don't know exactly. But the theory that I work with in the book, focusing on sort of where ultimately Judeo-Christianity emerged sort of in that crescent of civilization And this is looking at the work of anthropologists like Marita Gambutas. He passed long ago, but was this pioneering anthropologist who was in her lifetime, or actually after her death, sort of mocked and derided for having this really big theory about the formation of patriarchy. Hmm. And her reputation was destroyed only for her to be found to be right. So her theory, and this is, you know, probably like 5,000, 6,000 BC. The timing, I can't remember the exact timing. And there's some excellent books like The Patriarchs by Angela Saini or The Dawn of Everything by David Wengrow and David Graeber, which will give really good summaries of this as well. But the theory is that the peoples that were there were highly affiliative partnership-style communities, deep reverence, for the goddess and for the creation of life, as you can imagine, yeah, this is pre-science, right? It's like, how do women create life? You know, yeah. there was like a real reverence for the feminine. Not to say yeah. it was a dominance-based matriarchal culture, but there was this affiliative partnership culture that was present. And then they're called Kurgans. They descended from the Russian steppes. And they're called Kurgans because of the way that they bury people in these mounds. They descended, and this was Maria Gambutas's theory, that they came down, raped, pillaged, enslaved women and children, created the first property, and that this was the roots of our patriarchal culture. Mm. And so this is what people said was crazy. And now we are starting to see that she was right because at around that point in history, I think her timing was slightly different. We see the DNA be replaced. Mm-hmm. And then from patriarchy, you start to get culture society organizing itself around these dominance-based hierarchical models where women are veiled according to decency. Do they have one sexual partner or many? You know, are they a slave? a concubine or a respectable wife, Mm. right? And women sort of could drop in rank. And you start to see the emergence of like, we have sort of our first written codes of law, like Hammurabi's code, which a lot of people have heard of, an eye for an eye. When you look at what's written in that code, there's no morality. There's not the presence of a God on high judging but it's deeply misogynistic. I don't remember the exact verbiage, but it's it's similar to like if a woman commits adultery, she'll be stoned and drowned. If a man commits adultery, he owes the his wife's father like five bucks. You know, it's stuff like that all over the place. And then we start to see the emergence of monotheism and 
the Abrahamic religions, which is when you start to see law married to the ultimate patriarch, right? The ultimate patriarch in the sky. And then my book is structured around the seven deadly sins, which might sound odd. And I wasn't raised in a religious household, but I argue that those are the primary codes of goodness that are lodged in the minds of women. And that happened actually not with Christ, not with Jesus, but in the centuries after he lived and died. Yeah, this wasn't even part of the Bible, you say. It's not part of the Bible, no. Mm. But it's a big part of Catholicism, the cardinal vices. Yeah. But that didn't happen until much later. So in 590, in the 4th century, when the New Testament, when the canon, the Nicene Creed and the New Testament was assembled, and they said, Mm -hmm. these are the four Gospels, and the rest of these Gospels are heretical. These are known as the Gnostic Gospels. They were recovered really only very recently. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are many more that we'll never see. But while the New Testament, around the same time that the New Testament was being canonized, and again, this is centuries after Jesus lived and died, then this monk, this in the Egyptian desert, Evagrius Ponticus, he's credited as an early father of the Enneagram. He wrote down these, they were called eight demonic thoughts. Daemon, meaning distraction. These were mm. thoughts that would keep you out of, out of prayer. And sort of these very basic human instincts and desires. And it's the seven deadly sins plus the eighth was sadness. Mm. And then he wrote this little prayer book, this chat book about how to, you know, combat these distractions. And that made the rounds. And then in 590, so many centuries later, yeah. Pope Gregory I took these eight thoughts, dropped sadness, although I include that in the book. Yeah. And he said, these are the cardinal vices. Mm-hmm. And Mary Magdalene, who is an amazing character in the Bible, and we, this is a long, I won't go into a huge tangent on Mary, but she was really the first apostle. Mm-hmm. She was the one who saw Jesus when he resurrected and then gave that teaching to the other apostles. But Peter became the first apostle, no surprise. Mm -hmm. And Mary, she had an amazing Gnostic gospel, the gospel of Mary. It's very beautiful, but didn't make the New Testament. Anyway, in the New Testament, she is the one who is described, she's in it very lightly, as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons. And he exercised a lot of people in the Bible. And so Pope Gregory I in 590 said, These are the cardinal vices. These seven, not eight, are the cardinal vices. These are the same vices that Jesus exercised from Mary Magdalene. Mm. Mary Magdalene is the same woman as the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her hair. Different woman, but no no bother. Mm. And that woman, and thus Mary Magdalene, is a prostitute, a penitent prostitute. So that's where that whole story started, a total story. And then she wore that reputation. Pope Gregory also yeah. allowed religious iconography and art to be made because that was not allowed in the Old Testament. Oh, fascinating. And so you see her painted over and over again as a penitent prostitute clinging to Christ. And then it wasn't until like the 80s. I don't remember which pope said, oh, we kind of got that wrong. She wasn't actually a prostitute. And then in 2016, Pope Francis made her the apostle to the apostles. Mm. 
But the damage was done. The damage was done. I didn't learn about the Gospel of Mary until a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I mean, I grew up Catholic. You know, my parents stopped going to church at some point. But even, you know, all of the work I've done and all of the spiritual teachings that I've had, and I still, when I first got my hands on the Gospel of Mary, or at least started hearing people talk about it, I just couldn't stop crying. I was like, oh, here it is. Here it is. This is it. And Mm -hmm. what have I been denied my whole life? (laughs) Well, and that's such a beautiful example. One, it's the presence of the feminine and this idea that this woman was the best student. And people obviously love to think that they were lovers. Who cares? I mean, maybe. I would hope so. But it's not that interesting to me. But she was clearly the one who really understood what Mm -hmm. he was saying. And so you think about our world and how different it would be. Yeah. If she had been revered and respected as as a uh, teacher herself, she was a yeah. teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Hi there. I just wanted to pop in really quickly and let you know that an easy way that you can support this work is to sign up for the Mind Body Spirit Food newsletter. In the weekly newsletter, you'll get brand new recipes each week, along with my thoughts, ideas, and practical tips for how to bring more ease and joy and freedom into the kitchen. The newsletter is free, although if you become a paid subscriber for just a couple bucks a month, you'll have access to the full recipe archive, along with Q&As, weekly threads, and other fun perks. And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You can share the newsletter with your friends or even give a gift subscription. I've popped a link into the show notes where you can sign up. Thank you all for listening. And now back to the show. So seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth is, you know, as they've been codified. We're going to talk a little bit about the gluttony chapter today, which is just such great timing because this is airing right before Thanksgiving. So on page 119, I love this line. You say, women and food, a story as old as stories. It is the mythological tale of Eve, whose single bite of an apple evicted us from the garden and opened a trapdoor of condemnation beneath our feet. Every time we eat, we're judged by dinner mates, our parents, ourselves. Instead of listening to what hunger signals, we condemn and shame it, deny its existence, refuse to consider what it's trying to express. Ooh, yes. Okay. So how do you define gluttony? And how is this? quote unquote, sin come to monitor female behavior? And that is a huge question. And I realize I'm (laughs) throwing that at you. (laughs) Well, this is what I think is so interesting about gluttony and the way that it's been internalized in our culture, right? So gluttony could be applied to sort of so many things, right? Like this idea of extreme overindulgence, right? Mm -hmm. The Romans... There's a lot of, like, mythology about the vomitoriums, right? Like people eating to such excess that they make themselves sick. But here in our lives, it is not that, right? It's not typified by binge eating disorder. This is, I think, for most women, the letting anything that we deem as bad or too much or too delicious or too indulgent feels gluttonous. And so you hear a lot of like, I was bad and now I need to be good. The moralizing that we do about food is so intense. And so it's all over the place, but I don't know that we necessarily witness ourselves even saying Mm -hmm. these things or playing into these patterns. And that's 
what I found in my own life was this just fear, which probably started, you know, started with my father to some extent, but it's so much bigger than my dad. It's so much bigger, which is if I don't keep myself under control, if Mm. I'm not hyper-disciplined about my plate and my diet in general, then I will just lose it, right? Mm. My body will just take off, you know, that there's this sort of insane person inside of me that will, if not completely on a leash, I'll soon be rolling out of my house, right? This is deeply, I think, in me, but also in almost every woman I meet. It's very hard to meet a woman who feels completely comfortable around food. You know, it's instead sort of like that food has more power than me yeah, and will destroy me. Yeah. It's fascinating. I've shared very openly about I had an eating disorder in my late teens and early 20s. And I want to kind of get into this next a little bit, but so much of it was about control, Mm -hmm. as you said. So I want to talk about two things, like control and pleasure, because so much of that is about control. And as you share in the book, yes, it's like a top-down control. We are being controlled. I mean, we think of diet culture and all of these ways that culture tries to control us and make thinness the ideal. And then we do it to ourselves. And we do it to ourselves out of, at least in my case, anxiety and a need to prove my worth. Mm-hmm. And both of those things are true at the same time. And I think they both then feed into each other and create a stronger pull or a stronger cycle. You say we're expected to be subservient to those who police us, and we also police ourselves. Yeah. I I guess I don't, I guess I don't know what the question is here, except for how do we start to separate ourselves from that need for control? And really this goes into the pleasure part because unless we have that trust in ourselves, we shut the door to pleasure. Yeah. And this is where in the absence of trust, we do reach for control, right? And in this world that's full of uncertainty, like the only thing that we feel like we can control often is our bodies and our, or that we should be able to control is our bodies and our response to the world. And so the instinct is incredibly understandable, valid, and real. And I think, too, in the context of eating disorders, never fully submitting to one myself, but sort of always on that spectrum of permitting and restricting and watching many of my friends, particularly in high school, go through the experience. And I read a lot of Marion Woodman. I don't know if you've read her. She was a Jungian analyst, and she talked about food and women a lot and eating disorders. And as you said, it being a function of control and also a desire to either disappear yourself, Mm -hmm. like turn into spirit, essentially through lightness, instinct to not be here, and or to concretize yourself in mass, Mm -hmm. to create like the only physical barriers were to create sturdier physical barriers. Her work is really fascinating because it explores sort of all that is not necessarily, I mean, it's it deals very much in the unconscious in a way that we don't mm-hmm. necessarily know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But that's 
that's potentially the deeper instinct to sort of like blow away or to become so solid that you're secure. Mm. And I get it. You know, it's so much of what it is to be a woman. And I'm sure this experience is similar for men, but in different ways is expressed through the body. And it's almost like, I mean, you go back to sort of the argument between matter and spirit, for example, and Mm. women always occupy matter. The etymology of matter is mater, mother. Interesting. And it's women as flesh. And there's sort of, when you get into the the like more insidious parts of a religious worldview, the world is all about, the instinct or the desire is always to get away from the flesh, right? Yeah. To escape the flesh. The flesh is depraved. The flesh is bad. Yeah. And so I think that this is so heavy in the consciousness of women that our very physicality is somehow depraved. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I don't know if you've read Hillary McBride's book, The Wisdom of Our Bodies, but she talks about that, how our bodies are, Mm. in a way, I had one of my podcast episodes with shaman practitioner Natalie Deep, who's my own spiritual teacher. And, Mm. you know, as she describes it, our bodies are our sacred vessels. They're what our spirit chose to come into. And whether you believe that or not doesn't really matter, but our bodies have an immense amount of wisdom. And we often disconnect from that out of that need for control. I mean, truthfully, our bodies have been controlled for mm-hmm. centuries and, you know, particularly people of color. Mm-hmm. So we've got that, we've got so much kind of coming at us with disconnecting ourselves from the power, from that spiritual essence that we talked about at the top of the conversation that's within us, that is in our bodies and without. It's kind of in and out out, out of our bodies. And when we cut off that access and lose that sense of trust, not only do we lose something incredibly educational about ourselves, educational isn't the right word, but we also cut ourselves off from a vast amount of pleasure and what it means to be human. You know, we're given these bodies, we're given these sensual bodies And our sensual selves are just such an exploration of joy. And here we're taught, certainly for me with growing up as a Catholic, that my body was something to be feared. I Mm -hmm. really felt my body was something to be feared. And I had no relation, no connection to my body because I did not want it. I did not want it. And it took me well into my 20s to regain that. But I guess what I'm thinking about, what's occurring to me now is there's also this need for safety. And you kind of talk about this within the book too. Like we need to feel safe. You speak about this in the lust chapter. In order to fully release, you know, we need to feel safe. So where is that link between safety and food and control in your opinion? So interesting. I wish I had a better, I've been reading a lot about addiction for a series that I'm working on on my podcast. And I wish I had more. I'm just going to drop this here because I think that there's a link here, which I didn't really understand. But I'm reading Maya Zalovitz's book called 
the broken brain or the unbroken brain. Anyway, she talks about how dopamine, for example, which we think of sort of as the pleasure center of the brain, Mm -hmm. but how there is actually a very big difference between desire and pleasure. And I know they sound like synonyms, but I think that desire is this thing that you want because we're conditioned to want these things. Mm. And then pleasure is the ability to like actually enjoy it. So desire is sort of that appetite, which I think is how, if I can tease this out, there's something about this that feels so resonant to me because when we separate the two, when we deny ourselves pleasure, I think Mm. we're often in that desirous frame without ever really feeling satiated or allowed to have pleasure. Yes. And so it's sort of this empty loop for us, I think for a lot of women around food, where you can't really allow yourself to enjoy the donut. You want the donut, yeah, right? And yet it doesn't have pleasure Mm. because there's that part of you that's, not allowing or it's too severed and that to me feels very right and resonant and I'm excited to sort of know more about that distinction yeah and also how to bring them back together so that like when I'm having the donut I'm actually enjoying the donut without Mm. shaming myself simultaneously for having the donut exactly that's it. Like Thanksgiving, you know, is a f- few days away and we want these things and yes. we absolutely deny ourselves or I found and something I've written about as well is we give them to ourselves and then we follow it up immediately with guilt and shame. Yeah. And, you know, those are two of the most useless emotions. Yeah. And I guess the bigger question is why. And a lot of the why is diet culture. And we could even just get into that. Diet culture, I think, has such an impact on how we see our bodies. We live in a culture where thinness is the ideal. I can direct listeners to my podcast episode with Virginia Soul Smith. She's the author of Fat Talk, and mm-hmm. her work is on fat phobia. How do you think diet culture plays into all of this? Oh, I mean, it's the Bible, right? <laughs> Again, because just this is how we code morality in our culture, being good, being disciplined, being self-controlled, quote-unquote, taking care of ourselves. Meanwhile, anyone who's been in a body for a minute understands, like, if only we could control and direct our bodies to do exactly what we think. And that's like the myth. That's like the wildest story, right? Mm. That we can determine exactly how we show up physically. Well, I don't know about you, but this is what I was born with, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't choose any of this. I can't change the size of my feet. (laughs) You know, like there's so much about our bodies that are fixed. And yet I think we've all bought into this idea that it's mutable and under our control and should be under our control and dominion. So, Mm. you know, diet culture is just another sort of, edict that like, well, if you just had more self-respect and more self-love, and if you weren't sort of a runaway psycho with the Twinkies, 
then this would all be under control. We would all conform. There'd be no body deviance. Like this is all attainable. Mm. Meanwhile, everything about each of us is variable and different. It's so obvious and yet so invisible to us, if that makes sense. My body is going to kind of do what my body is going to do. Yep. I didn't choose it. And I can sort of drive myself crazy, consume most of my energy thinking about it. Yeah. Worrying about it and trying to make it be something else. Or I can just let my body do its thing. And that's what I've been practicing. It's hard. It's Mm -hmm. so hard. But I've been in a process of retraining myself around food, not weighing myself, not berating myself. Part of it was I have a a very conforming body, right? And yet still I've been consumed by this for most of my life. Yep. And part of it was... I'm not great at keeping my photos organized, but, you know, what my best friend in college was sending me pictures a few years ago from when we were 20, 21, Mm -hmm. you know, in Mexico in spring break wearing like barely their clothing. And I looked at these photos and I was like, wow, like my body, I was slam. I looked amazing, right? Mm. What did I think I looked like when I was 21? Too big. Mm. you know, all the same things. It's the same script. And so at that moment, I was like, wow, you have lost, you, none of us can be objective about our bodies. Mm -hmm. None of us can actually, I think, see ourselves with any accuracy. Sorry, friends, we just can't. And in that moment, I was like, you're done. Like you are not allowed to have an opinion about your appearance. You are not a reliable narrator mm-hmm. of reality. Yes. Sorry, you're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes back to then, okay, you're not allowed to have an opinion about your appearance, or at least let's try to make it neutral. Mm-hmm. So what can we do? Well, gosh, we can use our senses. We can feel into what hunger feels like in our body and actually start listening to it instead of ignoring it, denying it, you know, yeah. all the things we do with hunger. Okay, what does that feel like? And then for me, you know, with the work I do, it's like, so in order to get to that place, we have to create an inner connection. It has to be part of the work. And what was fascinating in reading your book about, you know, this patriarchal web at the last chapter, how do we start to get out of it? And it's the same thing. We have to start to do that inner work first for ourselves before we can just shift the whole system. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Part of the reason that I wanted to write the book is that I felt in myself as well, this instinct to sort of rail my fists and scream at sort of quote unquote men and people in power and demand, you know, better systems. And that is all worthy work. Mm -hmm. But what I had to realize when I actually sort of did an assessment of my life and looked for the insidious characters, right? Or the people who were pushing the system on me. Yeah. Sure. I could find some 
people in my immediate and sort of like distant past. But mostly I was like, this isn't coming from out there. I have worked for some incredible men who have been amazing mentors and advocated for me and paid me very well, et cetera, et cetera. I'm married to a very feminist man who really doesn't put anything on me. Besides my dad's fat phobia, my parents are, you know, really liberal, progressive, feminist people who sent me to schools with no grades. Like, I couldn't really find it in the culture. And yet it's so deeply in me. And so that's really what I wanted to explore is what have I taken on as my own that's actually much bigger? What's cultural versus what's me? And... How do I unhook from that? Because my husband isn't saying, are you really going to have that ice cream sandwich? Or do you really think you should be eating carbs? Right. That's not coming from him. He has never said anything deprecating about my body ever or sort of cast a side eye at me. This is all me. Mm. And so that's what I needed to attend to because it's so much easier to sort of place the blame out there. And this isn't about blaming ourselves or making ourselves feel worse either, but it's to understand, oh, no, the voice is coming from inside the house. Yeah. And in order for me to resolve this out there, I need to resolve it in here. Mm. Also, so I can stop pushing my stuff, all this stuff that I don't want to see you know, my shadow, I want to stop projecting that onto other women and other people and actually do that work myself. Mm. As you were speaking, it's so funny because I was just before we got on the call writing my newsletter for next week, which will come out the Friday before this airs. And it's interesting because I'm looking at how I perpetuate these systems of perfectionism around the holidays and how I perpetuate it, not in a way that I'm putting shame on myself because we all do this. We're just part of this system. But to actually take a look at how am I not serving myself? How am Mm -hmm. I being a perfectionist but denying it? (laughs) It's not easy work to look at that stuff. And I think it takes an immense amount of compassion for ourselves to do that work. But it's also so liberating to say, oh, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. This is something I can maybe not take care of isn't the right word, but I can nurture, nourish, tend to myself. I don't have to keep seeking the outside guidance or whatever it is. I can actually just go inward. And sometimes that takes guidance, to be frank. But that going inward is so important. Yeah. Okay. So this conversation has been so powerful and I'm so grateful. I have one more question, but before we get there, please let everyone know where they can find your book on our best behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and The Price Women Pay to Be Good. By the way, you can find it everywhere, so I don't even know why I asked you that question. (laughs) Wherever books are sold. But where can they find you? (laughs) Okay. So I'm on Instagram at Elise Lunan. And then I have a podcast called Pulling the Thread. Listen, it's so good. Oh, thank you. 
And then a newsletter also called Pulling the Thread, but that's just eliselunan.substack.com. And I have lots of book recommendations and I write uh, weekly. Sometimes I write twice a week newsletter there about many of these same themes. Yes, I will be sure to link to all of it. All right. My last question is just a fun one. And it's the last question I ask all of my guests. And that is, it's your last meal on earth. What Mm. would it be? This is so gross, but my comfort meal as a child, it's funny. One of my sons is like me and the other one is like my brother. My brother needed all food compartmentalized and Mm -hmm. like wanted separate utensils. And I liked to mix everything together. Yep. And as a child, I loved Kraft macaroni and cheese, cottage cheese, and applesauce. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. But that's my comfort meal. Maybe some frozen corn in there too, friends. Oh my God. Okay. I can't judge this because I'm a mixer. I'm 100% a mixer uh-huh. and you better believe that I'm going to try it. I, just... I mean, I haven't had it in a while, but it was a real thing for me as a kid. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lise. It's been such a great conversation. I think it's given everyone a lot to chew on over the holiday season. And I do recommend everyone get your hands on this book. It will really open your eyes to so, so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If this work resonates with you in any way, you can support it by leaving a review or comment or sharing it with friends. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter, Mind, Body, Spirit, Food, And by becoming a paid member for just $5 a month, you help fund this entire project. Thank you so much to all of you who are already subscribed, especially to those paid subscribers. This work could not happen without you. I'm Nikki Sizemore. And as always, remember to nourish yourself with intention and love.